I want to say that it's good to see everyone that has come out to worship God with us this evening. We're glad that you're here. Glad that you chose to be with us. I know it's a little cool out there. I understand it's going to get a little cooler before it gets warmer. But we're glad that you're here and hopefully we'll have something to say that you might be able to use as you go along life's way. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Ezra, the 7th chapter and the 10th verse. And I want to make a note here of what Ezra has to say and, and about the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the, a great time that God was doing a mighty work among his people. And I want us to, to glean some things and gather some things from what, what he has to say here. And, and just verse number 10 is said about Ezra. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and commandments. Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the Lord to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach it. You know, this is a great time in the history of Israel. They had been in bondage and been taken over by the Babylonians, and they'd been carried off, and now the Medes and the Persians are in power. And now they're returning back, and they're rebuilding their temple, and they're going to rebuild the city, and they're going to go back to worshiping God the way their fathers had been taught to do in the law of Moses. And God was using Ezra at this time to do a great work. And Ezra prepared his heart to do the great work that God was going to be doing. You know, it's very difficult and I'm struggling with it right now. It's very hard for me to simply say Ezra. Most of the time when I talk about this time period, I say Ezra Nehemiah. Because you can't hardly talk about Ezra without talking about Nehemiah. And you can't talk about Nehemiah without talking about Ezra. Because they were in this together. And they were doing this great work of rebuilding God's city and, and the temple and the worship of God. They were involved in doing it together. You know, only twice in history has there been a tremendous gathering in one location of powerful preachers. Now, I know sometimes preachers in our day will get together and you'll have several of them in one place, but I want you to think about what I'm talking about. There is a time that is called the Great Synagogue. Now, what that is, is the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, right after they've rebuilt the temple after the captivity. And most of the minor prophets that wrote in the end of the Old Testament with Ezra and Nehemiah, they went to church, as we would say, they went to church together. Could you imagine going to church where half a dozen or better of the guys that wrote the Old Testament were sitting there with you? That would be an amazing thing. It would have been a very powerful situation. When the other time there was a great power of preachers together was in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem. The 12 apostles were there. The ones that were chosen by Jesus and Matthias chosen by the casting of the lot. And then when you get to Acts 15, Paul, Barnabas, and Luke show up. And in one church service, you've got the 12 apostles, Paul, Luke, and Barnabas. You know, my father-in-law used to tell me there were times that whenever he had to speak, going different places, it made him nervous for certain people to be there. He always made him nervous when Joe Dukes or Truman Teal was present. And after having met Joe and Truman, I can understand why. How would you like to take your turn speaking in Acts 15 when the 12 apostles and Paul and Luke, the men that wrote the New Testament, are sitting there? 
My fear is they would come up to me after service and go, how'd you get that out of what I wrote? <laughs> Wouldn't that be just a little bit intimidating? Now, here's what I want you to understand, though. As powerful as those men are that wrote in the Old Testament, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, as powerful as they were in the New Testament, in Acts 2, they didn't do it by themselves. They did not go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature by themselves. They had help. They had people that went with them. They had people that went and did the work when apostles weren't around. When you come to Acts chapter 11, verse 26, in Antioch, you'll find that the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. You know what's neat about that? I got to looking at it. It wasn't started by Paul or Barnabas. It wasn't started by Peter or John. Now they came, Paul and Barnabas came to Antioch and worked with the church there, but they didn't start it. Who started it? The brethren started it. Years ago, there was a study done, and it cost you $6 million, back when $6 million was real money. Some of you go, well, I still think it's real money. <laughs> not, not if you're in the government, it's not. You're going to need some more zeros. But they spent $6 million of your money to do a study in South America because there was a religious group that was growing by leaps and bounds. They were absolutely taking over, and they were just... Everywhere they went, you could find these people, and they were just growing and spreading like wildfire. And the government, for some reason, wanted to know why. Now, I could have done it for three mil easy, I guarantee it. <laughs> could have saved them a lot of money. But when they got done with their study, the last line of the study, you know, and of course, educated people, about that thick, and then it come down to one paragraph, which really told you everything, and in this case, one sentence. You see, they come to the conclusion that the growth of any movement is in direct proportion to its ability to motivate 100% of its membership for continual evangelistic efforts. Now, since that costs you so much money, let's break it down. Let's put, you see, I'm bilingual. I can speak that, and I can also speak redneck. Now, the more of you that go to work, the faster we're going to grow. That's what that meant. The movement, any movement, its growth is in direct proportion to its ability to get 100% of the people to go to work. Now, I direct your attention to Acts chapter 8. Here, Paul is breathing out slaughterings and threatenings against the church. He has killed Stephen, essentially. He held the coats of those that stoned him. And as you read down there, you're going to see because of the persecution, the people were scattered abroad. Except, now I want you to look at that word, except for the apostles. Those that were scattered abroad by the persecution was everybody but the apostles. And in verse number four, then they, everybody but the apostles, that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. One thing I've loved to study is what is called the Anti-Nicene Fathers. That was the history of the church before 325 A.D. Because after 325 A.D., it starts down a very slippery slope and things get messy in a hurry. 
You ever hear of a guy named Polycarp? That name may not mean much to you. I think a lot of him. He was an elder in the early 2nd century, late 1st century. And the Romans brought him and going to kill him. They said, we're going to burn you at the stake unless you deny this Jesus. Polycarp said this. Eighty years I've served him and he's never failed me. I will not fail him now. And they burned him at the stake and he died. He was an elder in the church. As far as I know, he never did a miracle. He didn't write scripture. But he believed in Jesus and he led God's people. You ever heard of Justin Martyr? Folks, his name wasn't Justin Martyr. His name was Justin. Justin was early 2nd century and he was an elder in the church. And the ch Rome was persecuting the church. And Justin decided he would write a letter to the king explaining the practices of the church and how they obeyed the laws of the land. When he wrote that letter to try to help his brethren, he signed his own death warrant and they came and got him and killed him. That the apostles didn't do it by themselves. And there were people like me and you that they didn't raise the dead. They weren't healing sick. They weren't doing all these things. They weren't writing scripture. But they were preaching the word everywhere they went. And the church would grow. No one man's going to do it by himself. You will never hire a preacher that will evangelize this town. God never intended it to work that way. It's going to take all of us, folks. All of us working together. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah were leaders. I'll give them that. But they didn't build them walls by themselves. They didn't do the masonry. They didn't do the brickwork. They didn't do the woodwork. They didn't do the defending by themselves. I kind of like to think about me and you in this way. Folks, we got to all hang together. Benjamin Franklin, in the early part of our country, said it like this to the guys that signed the Declaration of Independence. Fellas, we can either hang together or we will hang separately. <laughs> we need to hang together, brethren. It's going to take all of us to do the work that God has planned. And we all need to prepare our heart to do our part. I don't know what that part is. But I know God has a place for every one of us and He wants us to be involved in that great work that He wants to do to spread His gospel and build the church. And He's got a place for you. Man, woman, and child. He's got a place for all of us. Ladies, I want you to think about something. I've always thought it was ironic. Maybe it hasn't bothered y'all. Maybe I'm just weird the way I think. But Paul got the Macedonian call. You know, we sing the song, Send the Light, <laughs> about that. A man of Macedonia saying, come and preach to us. Don't you think it's odd that after the Macedonian call, the first person he went to was a woman? Look it up. Check me out. He went to Lydia, the seller of purple. And a group of women were making prayer by the riverside on the Sabbath. Now, purple was a dye, and it was very costly. And a lot of people involved in that 
had money. My guess is Lydia was not a pauper. But she was a believer in God. And she obeyed the gospel at the preaching of Paul. Now in Philippians chapter 4, Entreat those women which labored with me in the gospel. wonder who he had in mind. Later on, he said, time and again, you communicated to my need. In other words, they sent support to him to help him on his journey. You reckon the seller of purple had anything to do with that? God has a place for all of us, man, woman, and child. And he wants us all to be involved in the work. In Acts chapter 3 and 9, we are laborers together. You are God's husbandry. All of us in it together doing our part. That's what God expects. In Ecclesiastes 4, I thought that Genghis Khan came up with this and he must have read the Old Testament. He had seven sons is what I understood. I don't know. But he called them together and he gave each of them a twig, a stick. And he told them, break it. And they snapped it. Then he took seven of those sticks and he bound them together and handed it each one and said, break it. And they couldn't do it. And he told his sons, that is the kingdom. The seven of you standing together will not be broken. In Ecclesiastes 4, Solomon said a threefold cord is not easily broken. I imagine Genghis Khan got it from Solomon. Where two go together, one falls, the other will pick him up. Together. If we're going to accomplish the great work that God has for us to do, we're going to do it together. And all of us are going to have to do our part. When I got out of high school, I went to work for a company and was dating Beverly and basically chasing her, trying to impress her on occasion. And I remember that I worked the night shift. And I got to thinking, the night shift is perfect for me. And here's why, boys. I can work all night. Bev will be sleeping. There won't be nobody around. When I get off the next morning, I can take care of some business, do some things I need to do. And that afternoon, she's playing basketball or whatever. I can spend time with her. And then I can go back and do my job when everybody's asleep again. Now, you fellas probably know the one thing that I left out of my little plan was sleep. <laughs> and a lot of times I would go from Sunday night when I went to work, I wouldn't go to sleep until Thursday. Would not go to bed. I remember one Thursday morning I went into the house before Bev and I was married and I saw a piece of paper under the uh, coffee table, kind of under the edge of the couch. I laid on the floor and reached over there to pick it up. Twelve hours later I woke up still on the floor with masonite imprinted on my face. And you know, along about Thursday, I would call the bosses and go, I can't come to work. I'm sick. And folks, I wasn't kidding. I was exhausted. I was sick. And I'd miss a day or two. And sure as clockwork, Thursday, Marlon was sick. Finally, the boss called me in. And I learned this lesson quickly. He said, Marlon, you a good boy. Now, anything that starts with that is going downhill from there. 
You're a good boy, but when you realize you got to work for a living, you're going to be all right. And then he asked me a question. He goes, what do you think we do with the machines you run when you don't come to work? And I could tell by the expression on my face, he thought, man, this kid is green. He don't get it. I go, will you turn them off? I'll be there the next day. This is a multi-billion dollar company. Surely it ain't going to shut down because I took a day off. He said, Marlon, when you miss, somebody's got to do your job. We can't shut that down. And you make it harder on everybody else that works with you. That's why they're mad at you on Friday. It never dawned on me. Now they have a term for that. It's called laying out. Are you laying out on the Lord? Let me tell you something. If you don't do your part, it don't, it don't just shut down. Somebody got to do it. Somebody got to make up the slack. That's what Paul was trying to communicate to us in 1 Corinthians 12 when he talked about us being like the body, fitly joined together and all the parts working together. I heard about a preacher years ago. and You can take this as an extra. There's no charge for this. He said he got to drink and sank a coffee. And actually, he said he called it doing sank a coffee because you don't really get anything out of it. So it's just doing it, not drinking it. But he was drinking some sank a coffee with a friend of his, and he looked at the lid and he goes, That reminds me of the church. And the guy looked at it and goes, The sank a coffee lid? He goes, Yeah, it says 98% of the active ingredients have been removed. <laughs> I hope that doesn't describe us, folks. I hope every one of us is ready to do our part, work together and pull together to do the great work that God has for us to do. He prepared his heart to seek the law because he needed to do a great work. He was preparing himself to do it. In the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20, I want to share a verse with you if I might. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 20. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and fit for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. And then he tells him what he wants him to do, to prepare himself. What kind of vessel are you? Are we a vessel of honor? Are we a vessel of the dishonor? We can prepare ourselves to be the kind of vessel the Lord wants to use. Or we can be the other. Now in Titus 1 and 16, the Bible says they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. Years ago I worked with Tony's dad down in the, and Tony was a little fellow down in the Rio Grande Valley and his dad was in the jewelry business. And I come in and Alvin had a pile of gold sitting over on one side. And I said, what's that? He said, that's reprobate. First time I'd heard it used in that way. I said, reprobate? That's gold, man. He said, it's going to be sold as scrap. I go, what do you mean? He said, this metal has got so many impurities in it, we can't use it for jewelry. So we're going to sell it on the spot market as scrap. That's what he meant by saying, unto every good work, they're reprobates. We've got so much impurity in us 
that God can't use us and we wind up on the scrap heap. Prepare yourself to do the great work of God. You know, years ago, when I first come to the church, one of the first preachers I run into was Bud Jones. And when he said fuzzy-headed kid, there's two things you got to remember. One is I had hair. <laughs> and second, it was late 60s, early 70s. And if you don't know what that means, Google it, and you'll see pictures of what that looked like. And we all needed a haircut real bad. And I would go in there, and I'd sit by Bev, and you couldn't get a credit card between us. And Bud Jones used to go, if I can get that fuzzy-headed kid to listen to me. <laughs> if I can just get that fuzzy-headed kid to You know, I wasn't interested in what Bud had to say. But all of a sudden, things begin to come through. And then Jerry McCork will come through, and we visited a while, and I obeyed the gospel. And I remember being about 18, and he's saying, Martin, one of these days... You're going to be 55, 60. You need to prepare yourself now to do the work then. You know what I thought? Are you out of your mind? <laughs> How old is this dude, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, they all tell us boys that. Yeah, one of these days you'll be the old man and you'll get to, yeah, 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 yeah. And I blew him off like everybody else does me. You know what? Holy cow. <laughs> Next you're looking at 55 and 60. Now, Ricky will tell you at home, the young people are going to be passing out circulars. 59 and under. <laughs> That's what we measure young people at. Time went by. You know, the one thing that's going to happen is time is going to go by unless the Lord comes again. And those that are 18, 19 will be 60, 65. Will you have prepared yourself to be a vessel of honor or dishonor? You start now. You don't wait. It don't just happen overnight. But it will happen. Many of you didn't get to know Brother Roy Hazelton. Some of you are old enough to remember him and his preaching days and the work he did. I remember one time Brother Roy got a tear in his eye. Older fellow, he's in his 80s. He said, Marlon, one day I went to church. He said, I used to go to church. Brother Will Hayes was there and all these guys. And I enjoyed visiting with those older men. He said, one day I went to church and I looked for the old people. And I couldn't find any. <laughs> you know what had happened, don't you? He was the old people. And it's going to happen with us. Prepare your heart. Seek your creator in the days of your youth. Romans 9, 21, the Bible talks about God is the potter and we're the clay. Are we? Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Have thine own way, Lord. Really? Have you submitted your life to where he can have his own way and mold you and shape you to be what you want to be, what you need to be so he can use you? I'm going to give you one last thing about using people being used in the work that needs to be done. At home, I got to where when some of the young people are getting married, I'd spend time doing what we called the premarital counseling with them. And there was a couple of these young folks that come together and, and wanted to study, and I'd get together to study, and I could really relate to the young man, but I, I felt like there's something missing in my game. 
I'm not getting through to both of them. I'm letting them down. And I would pray about it and Lord make me wiser. Lord give me the wisdom to understand what I need to do. I was reading my Bible one morning while I was having my coffee. Bev was washing dishes. And I read in the book of Titus for the older women to teach the younger women. And it dawned on me what was wrong. Marlon, you don't know what it's like to be an 18 to 20 year old girl. You don't know what it's like to be a young mom. You don't know what it's like to be a wife having to deal with a husband and raising kids. And you know what, ladies? I am never going to know that. As much as I would like to and to tell you how to be a wife and a mom, I don't. I don't know how you think and what you're going through and what your emotions are. And I got kind of depressed because I couldn't do it. But then I looked up and I saw somebody standing at a sink that knows exactly what it's like. You know what we started doing? Next time somebody wanted to come over and talk about getting married and being married, Beverly's going to sit right there beside me. And you know what? It just made all the difference in the world. Prepare yourself, ladies. Prepare yourself, men, because there'll come a day when God's going to make great use of you in His work. He prepared his heart to seek the Lord and then to do it. It wasn't just enough to know what the Lord wanted done. He had to go and actually do it. We talked about James 1.22, about be ye doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving your own selves. We talked about self-deception. And we talked about you've got to do the word, not just hear. We talked about that last night. Now let me give you a little bit of a extra on that one. You ever read James 4.17? To him that knoweth to do good, and to him that doeth it not, to him it is sin. To him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And you know, all the time I've been in the church, I've had sermons, I've heard sermons about that. Even used it in sermons. One day I decided I want to sit down, and I want to see what he really meant. See, I always took it, if you know what to do and you don't do it, it's a sin. That's not what he had in mind, boys. If you go back to verse 13, he said, Go to now ye that say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such city, and we will continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. And then come the famous line, For what is your life? It's as a vapor that appears for a little while and vanisheth away. For we ought to say, If the Lord will, we'll get the point. And after he told them all that, he made the statement to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. You know what he meant? Don't wait till tomorrow. You know what you're supposed to do. You know what God wants you to do at the stage of life that you're in. Don't you put it off. Don't you wait. Folks, I'm afraid I violated this many times. And I'll tell you why. You know one of the bad habits I had was being behind the curve. In other words, I would see older men and women that were working in the kingdom. And I really didn't appreciate them like I should have. I thought we ought to do more, and we should do more. Don't, don't get me wrong. But you know what I didn't do? I woke up one day and go, my goodness, all these years they've carried that load waiting for help. 
All these years they've kept doors open. All these years they've set that table. And all these years. And I never told them how much I appreciated that. And I would determine in myself, the next time I see them, I'm going to tell them. And I'd get a call that they passed away and I didn't get it done. I put it off till tomorrow. Don't put it off. If you know what needs to be done today, do it today. And I'm going to tell you something. The people in your life that you appreciate that have done a lot for you, don't you wait till tomorrow to tell them. You'll turn around and they'll be gone. And you'll have missed that opportunity. James was saying, you know to do good, you do it now. Don't you wait. In Mark 16, verse 15, Jesus said, go into all the world. In Matthew 28, 19, Matthew's version of the Great Commission, go and teach all nations. You know what the first word in both of them is? Go. Jesus demands action from his people. He expects us to go and to do and practice what we know he would have us to do. So we prepare our heart to seek the Lord and to find out what his will is. And now we go and do it. But there's one last step. Ezra was going to teach the statutes and commandments to Israel. He was going to prepare his heart. He was going to do what God told him to do. And he was going to teach it to others. In Hebrews chapter 5 verse 19. The Bible says for the time comes you ought to be teachers of others. You have need that one come teach you again. Which would be the first principles of the oracles of God. For the time you ought to teach others. You have one need to be taught. You see... The writer was concerned about these folks. How come they're not growing up in the Lord? How come they're not able to do the teaching? They didn't prepare themselves, did they? I heard about an evangelist one time, and he preached a sermon about going out and teaching others. He was standing at the back of the building, like we do, shaking hands with folks. And one lady come up to him and said, Brother, just be kind and patient with us babes in Christ. He said, Sister, how long have you been in the church? She said, 42 years. <laughs> a little long to be a babe, don't you think? Now, if you're a babe in Christ, that's where you need to start. And, and desire the word, like the sincere milk of the word. But you grow up. You know, we have four kids, have four kids. They're grown people. If I've got a 42-year-old infant, I'm a bit concerned. Somebody goes, I think you should have went to the doctor about when that kid was about four. <laughs> Why'd you wait till he's 42? He never grew up. There's something wrong. As parents, we expect our children to come into the world, start off as babes, and grow up. What do you think the Heavenly Father expects of me and you as Christians? Grow up. Years ago, a fellow told me, we were talking about sometimes people come to the church and they become part of the church and then they leave the church. 
What's a surefire way to make sure somebody doesn't leave the church? Surefire. Well, I don't know that there is any 100%, but there's one that's real close. And I had an old brother tell me this. Marlon, you get a new Christian and you stay with them and you study with them until they're teaching others. And when they start teaching other people, you won't lose them. They'll stay in the church. You see, that's the step you got to take next. Teach others. Now, a lot of you are going to get an opportunity to do that, whether you plan to or not. Because some of the ones you're going to teach are sitting in your lap. You can't teach what you don't know. Do you know the book? Do you know what God wants these little ones to do? Can you talk to them about God and the Bible? And I know they can ask some tough questions. I understand that. But can you guide them and lead them? Had a fellow read a deal the other day about an old man that crossed a I guess a canyon with a river in the bottom of it. When he got to the other side, he stopped and built a bridge. And the other fellow on the other side said, hey, why'd you do that? You've already made it safe across. And he said, but there's a little one coming, and he may not can make it. And I'm going to build him a bridge. My grandmother, before my oldest son was born, she never lived to see him. She gave me an article. She said, put this in your Bible, and I did. And it talked about being the kind of man I ought to be because of the little chap that follows me. Dad, you walk on water. Mom, they'll love you like they will nobody else on earth. Don't mess this up. For the time come, you ought to teach others. I hope you're ready. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 11 and verse 30, he tells you who a wise man is. He that winneth souls is wise. Why is that? Why, reckon why he would say a soul winner is a wise person. Because someone that goes out and talks to another person about their soul. Everybody's different. And he can sit there and he can tell what they need to hear. He's wise. He knows how to talk to them. Prepare yourself to win souls. I want to ask y'all a question. I know this is probably not a good place to do that because y'all have had years of experience at this. What's the work of an evangelist? No, I have people ask me that every now and then. The older men, they go, what do you think the work of an evangelist is? They never like my answer. What do you think it is? Well, an evangelist is supposed to go out and convert people. Well, yeah, that's part of what he does. That's not the main job. Well, he's supposed to go help weak churches become strong churches. Well, they do that. But that's not their main job. Well, he's supposed to go out where there's no churches and start churches. Well, they did some of that, but that's not the main job. Somebody goes, then what is an evangelist supposed to do? In 1 Timothy 1 and 3, I besought thee to abide still in Ephesus. And I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge others that they teach no other doctrine. 
in 2 Timothy. Paul told Timothy in chapter 2, verse 2, commit the word to faithful men that will teach others also. The work of an evangelist was to teach people to teach, not do it for them. Nobody can do your work for you. No more than you can have somebody take communion for you or attend church for you or do your praying for you. Teach it to others. The job of an evangelist was to teach teachers that they could go out and teach others. 2 Corinthians 4 and 7, we have the treasure in earthen vessels. My brethren, God is working. God is still working just like He did the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and as sure as He worked on the day of Pentecost when the Apostle Peter stood up and opened his mouth. He's working today just as sure as He was working on the road to Damascus and He got a man that would go into all the world and preach the gospel and write two-thirds of the New Testament. Have you prepared your heart to seek the Lord? Are you prepared to do His will and to teach it to others? If not, why not? What's holding you back? If we can help you, come as we stand and sing.